Welcome to Hospitality Forward, a podcast where hospitality and travel professionals learn how to earn the media spotlight. My name is Hannah Lee. I am president of Hannah Lee Communications, an award-winning public relations agency in New York City. And I'm Michael Ann Stendig, a food and beverage writer and editor-in-chief at Hannah Lee Communications. As a PR professional myself and Michael as a journalist, we understand the power of media coverage and its impact on someone's career and business. So each week, we interview top journalists who share their insights and tips. In this episode, we chat with Joshua M. Bernstein, a freelance writer covering beer, spirits, food, and travel for the New York Times, Bon Appetit, Imbibe, and many other top outlets, as well as beer trades. Also, stay tuned for our HLC Innovation Report at the end of this episode and find out who's moving hospitality forward. Hi, Joshua. So great to see you. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Delighted you could join us. Joshua, you've been a freelance writer for over 20 years and covering beer, spirits, food, and travel. A lot of coverage is beer-related. So why beer? Yeah, I think for me, I mean, you write what you know and you write what you love, which is the easiest answer. But, you know, I think I came to New York City, gosh, yeah, more than 20 years ago. And like a lot of 22-year-olds, I wanted to go to bars and hang out. And so I did. And the beautiful thing about New York City is that the bars were open till four in the morning. And so when you've got a 22-year-old liver, it doesn't really much matter what you do. But I'd wake up in the morning and over time I started writing about the bars. I got a job with the New York Press, which is an alternative weekly, uh, Time Out New York, New York Magazine, all these places. So then I started writing more about bars, restaurants, all these things I was experiencing. And then slowly over time, probably around 2005 or six, we really started seeing this new wave of beer start taking off in America. And I started writing about it. I was curious, who are these producers? What are they making? Where are they selling it? And then one thing led to the next. And that's been you know a beat for 15 years or so now. Well, let's let's dig a little bit deeper into this. You know, you, you've spoken about some of the different outlets you've written for and write for. Given they have very different readerships, how do you tailor your stories to each one? So how how is like a New York Times story different than an Imbibe story, different than a Bon Appetit story? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think the hallmark of any good writer is having a malleable voice and being able to understand that. I'm I'm not just writing for myself right here. I like writing, but there's writing for yourself and there's writing for an audience. And I'm writing for an audience. And my editors and the owners and the publishers want a specific voice that aligns with themselves. So for Imbibe, it's a bit voicier. I get to be more magazine style storytelling. Um, when I write for the New York Times, you're definitely trans serving as the Rosetta Stone to translate these trends to a broad a national and much times like international audience, you know, in the end, you always have to let the editors comments, questions guide everything. I mean, if you want to run your own publication, you can, but I'm working for somebody else and they're looking to turn my stories into content for their audience. And so I've learned to be very, when I get edits, I just tend to shrug my shoulders. It's like, yep, I'll change it for you. There's no problem. And, you know, fight back when you feel like something, you feel strongly about it. But in the end, you just need to realize that, you're creating content for different audiences across the board. 
I mean, speaking of different audience, um, you wrote an article on Imbibe magazine on how the beer industry is dealing with COVID-19 from, you know, offering home delivery to beer by mail to virtual tastings. So what other innovations are you seeing? You know, the word pivot's been widely overused in the industry, but I prefer I prefer the I prefer the idea of like adaptation. How can you adapt again to be able to find to draw an audience? And so right now with winter hitting, indoor not being something that I think we're gonna be able to have right now, how do you create an outdoor space that's gonna be comfortable for people? So I'm looking across the country right now and interviewing people about how they're making spaces. And so for example, people are installing ice rinks from scratch, I kid you not, like building ice rinks on their property. Uh, Timberell Brewing and Ben just built kind of like hut, outdoor huts. You see people doubling down on fire pits. You see other people creating, um, you know, pass cards where if you drink X number of beers and the temperature is below 45 degrees, you get a free beer on them. And so it's different ways to get people to, to really embrace the cold in a way that they wouldn't before. So that's what I'm seeing right now is, People are realizing that winter could be worse in a lot of ways than before, and nobody is sitting around waiting for people to tell them that they can or can't do something. They're just trying stuff. Um, Solomoth Brewing outside Chicago just installed what they call like a they're a dome forest of all a bunch of those almost plastic igloos, but they surround they turn a parking lot into this dome forest and surrounded it with mulch and fake trees, so like you're walking through a forest. And so when it snows outside, you're almost like living inside of a snow globe. So people are trying to find any way, shape, and form they can to get people to still be outside in there. Because I think the most valuable drink you'll ever sell as a business, the drink that you make and that you sell on premise. And so, and that means liquid going into a glass usually. And without that, you're just not making your margins. And that's why it's really imperative for people to, A, give people... I think an outlet for their community because we can't be cooped up again and going out. We saw what that did to a lot of people's psyches. And so just seeing humans. So people are trying to create places that are as safe as possible to attract customers. I mean, you know, one thing we could say about the craft beer industry is this penchant for experimentation in terms of flavor, pushing the boundaries, taking things, you know, to the maximum in a lot of respects. Uh, but you know, we've been hearing in the pandemic that people are hun hunkering down psychologically and going for more of what they know, comfort foods and brands and flavors that they're familiar with. Do you think this in turn is affecting the craft beer world? And if so, do you think its ethos will change? That's a good question. I think what we're seeing with people turning back to flagship brands and things like that. So you have to think where people are shopping. People are shopping at grocery stores. They're looking to get in and out pretty quickly. And that benef that benefits brands that are already in package. So we saw sort of the, we saw 12 packs of beer really take off in the pandemic. And so 12 packs of well-priced beer, Sierra Nevada Pale Ale, uh, like 12 packs of like Dogfish Head 60 Minute, all of these beers that people could buy in bulk that were trusted name brands. We saw a lot of that happening. And so in the same sense where we're seeing flagship brands that are really being able to keep a lot of these legacy breweries afloat right now, not even afloat, but some of them are having incredible years right now with growth and like returning to growth because people are, I think, forced to return to comfort and people want 
things they know and love in a lot of ways too. But this has not stopped experimentation at all. I mean, I think there's still, uh, not even around the edges, but there's still deep, wide experimentation going on every single day. You're just not able to hop from brewery A to B to C to D to try them in the same way that you may have on a previous Saturday, let's just say in Brooklyn. People are starting to treat breweries much more as provision runs, whereas the same sort of, as a specialty food shop you go to once a week to get your salami and cheese. But now you're going there to get your double IPA done with marshmallows and your imperial stout that tastes like peanut butter. And so you're seeing these. So these lure beers are ways to get people to come in and make a new fresh stop. People are curious. I'm hearing stories about people. They're like, oh, when you're presented with a menu, a drop down menu of A, B, C, D, it's like, oh, maybe I'll try all these. I'll try this weird thing on top of this. And so I think and that gets people to come back and make orders again and again and again, because a big brewery is going to be able to survive on these 12 packs of people coming into grocery stores. But smaller breweries need to give you a reason to try something new again. So innovation Innovation, I wouldn't say it's gone underground, but it's like when you go to these brewery sites, you're going to see innovation or make stops. You'll see deep innovation, but grocery stores are cutting skews. They're not taking as many chances. So that's why in our traditional channels, you're seeing a lot more people making, um, you know, they're not, they're not going out and trialing new brands in the same way they may have previously. So circling back to some of the broader trends, you know, we're seeing the hazy IPA style being such a runaway success. I mean, what does that say about the evolution of the American beer palate? Are we over extremes of bitterness and uh, other permutations? You know, what does it say? Um, I think that we can't just use extremes to get attention. Um, I think bitterness is a very... So we'll do, we'll do the coffee analogy. So espresso, the basis of any like coffee drink is espresso. Like a latte, cappuccino, cortado is espresso. You know, espresso by itself does have fans. Sometimes you want to dilute it down with a, like water, like an Americano. Other people want to dump, have it topped with like whole fat milk and whipped cream and sprinkles on top. The hazy IPA is kind of like that where you're topping it with a little bit of like whipped cream. It's making something and making it, making something a bit more accessible to the masses. And it's a sweetness. It's basically sweet tropical fruit. I mean, sweet fruit juice. From drinking high C as kids to getting older, it's something that we've been primed to love. So I think what people have done is eliminate this barrier toward disgust, which bitterness can elicit on there too, and created a pathway to pleasure for a lot of people. And so I don't see that his IPA is not going away anywhere. It's gonna, it's, it's still on the ascent, and that's because it's bringing more people into beer. It's also forcing us to reframe what language we use. And I think language is sort of this barrier that we haven't gotten over with beer that people all the time are like, I don't like beers are too hoppy. And I'm like, okay, what does that mean? And like, well, I don't like all the bitterness, but I really like this hazy IPA. And I'm like, okay, the way we describe stuff is the excess of hops created, you know, you can have a beer that has a lot of hops with not a lot of bitterness, or you can have a beer with, you know, a lot of bitterness and a lot of hops. I mean, it's, it's just how you use them, where you use them, the varieties you use them. So we've not been really, good at the language but i think the hazy ipa has been a great emissary for bringing people in to flavor turning people on to what's possible with flavor and once you once you make it easy for somebody to like something it makes it easy for them to try other stuff as well too it could be a gateway to uh, other beers 
Yeah, they're they're gateways. They're gateways. They're they're open gates and not barriers. I guess would be a way for people to get in there too. You you start off. Some people you you want to have flavors that are familiar to you. If you're just trying something different, it's easy to love something that tastes like pineapples or orange juice because you know we had like cocktail co- cocktails we drink or having beers with lime, like a deck margaritas things. All these things are very familiar to us. You just build up what's familiar, then take it to what's esoteric. So I think once you get people in there and enjoying hazy IPAs, you can try the wide world of beer too. And I think we've had, there's definitely been a, some classic styles. have had a hard time of it of late, but we're starting to see, Around the edges, like Pilsner's, Lagers, Full Flavored, starting to make more inroads because people realize they can only consume so many. You can only consume so much alcohol. Your body's got a finite amount of liver tokens you can spend on a daily basis. Yeah. What I found interesting is Nelson reported that non-alcoholic beer has increased nearly 38% during the pandemic. So what do you think is driving this? And and do you see non-alcoholic being a permanent part of this drinking landscape? Um, I think right now it's still in the discovery phase for a lot of people. I think that the numbers have definitely increased for NA beer, but you're talking about those numbers, the acceleration are built off a small base. Like what, what were those small numbers at first? And so, yes, it may have doubled, but doubling the number four to eight is not the same as like for a beer category that's 500 doubling to like a thousand. So we're still seeing at the very early stages right now too. I think NA beer allows you to have discovery and trial because the liquor laws allow you to ship beer directly to your door. You don't have to go when there's no alcohol involved, you can ship the beer directly there. So you're getting people that are logging online, buying stuff, getting it shipped right to their doorsteps. And it's fun. I think, there was definitely a quarantine fatigue. I think I wrote about that. We're there too, where we had initial like three to four weeks where a lot of people were blotto and just kind of like, well, like 2 p.m. is a new whatever. And then nothing matters anymore. Nihilism, you know, paved with double IPAs and old fashioned. Um, so I think, but you realize that the reality does kick in eventually. And so I think it's, this is providing something that's a little more flavor than. You know, some a little more flavor than La Croix, but not but something that yeah, it's not your seltzer. Something a little bit different down there too. When you want to try a different beverage, it's still so early right now. And we're talking about a category exploding when we're separate from one another, and it's it's easy to do something when you're at home. But I'm curious how it's going to be rolled out when we start interacting with the world. I mean, there are tons of NA beers coming down the pipeline for 2021. Like uh, Lagunitas has an NA IPA. Sam Adams has an NA Hazy IPA. Um, Brooklyn Brewery is coming out the second uh, NA beer. And so people are betting big on it. I don't know if our drinking habits are going to mimic something I get akin to Germany, where NA beer in Europe, where NA beer is so ingrained. I don't know. I think we still expect our beer to have booze in it in America. So uh, I think it's going to have a place. And I think the companies that do it well are going to succeed. And I think there's going to be a lot of people that don't do it well that aren't going to last. Because right now there's just, there are too many brands coming in. And the quality, the quality is, you know, some are really good, some are not. Getting back to more societal trends, you had a great story in the New York Times, a very in-depth piece about the lack of diversity 
in the beer industry. And uh, we had a great quote from Garrett Oliver of Brooklyn Brewery, who said in his 30 years of being a uh, brewmaster, he never had a black applicant for a job. You know, it's a rather, rather shocking, you know, anecdote. And, you know, in response, he started a scholarship to encourage black brewers and distillers, which fantastic. And there are other programs by other breweries and other uh, activists across the country doing this, which, you know, we think is fantastic. But what do you think it's going to take to make craft beer more appealing to people of color, both as consumers and as producers? Um, I think right now we're seeing the very beginning of efforts that will bear fruit in about five years time. You know, right now is this is nothing that's going to change overnight right now. We're not all of a sudden going to have a nation of diverse beer drinkers. It took 40 years of craft beer building to get to this point right now where it has what, like less than 20 percent market, you know, less than 10. I don't know how the numbers in front of me and the definitions of craft beer are always changing. But I mean, it's it took this long to get to where we're at right now. And it's going to take a while, I think, to really get to a place where it's a fully diverse industry. It's going to take a lot of people that are going to have to take chances on people, people that you have to take chances on applicants. It's like the thing where, how do you get a job? You need experience. How do you experience? You get a job. So what we're seeing right now is the very beginning pathways of education is being pushed forward right now. I'm seeing educational initiatives across the country showing that it is possible that beer industry is not, I think people think of the beer industry as being, I'm a brewer, I make beer, that's it. You know, that's that's a job. But the job could be the person that cans the beer, it could be the person that designs the labels, it could be the person that sells the beer, it could be the person working in the lab. No matter, you, any job is possible within beer, and we have to show people that any job is possible, that and can, you can look like anybody and work within the beer industry. So I think education, is a big first step that we're seeing happening right now. And then once you're educated, education will lead to job opportunities. I mean, showing, giving people the tools to understand what it is, what, what the beer industry has to offer. That's, it's, I, I, I always tell people the liquid's almost the most boring part of beer itself because, you know, the liquid's the end of the story. How does the story get told? And so the story gets told from farmers, from brewers, the person in the tap room working, the person that designed the tap room. There's, any job you can dream of is possible in beer, essentially. That's very true. So um, what is your creative process for coming up with this type of amazing story ideas? Um, I, I just I pay attention very closely to the world around me. And I see how these like shifts are happening. And that's what I do. And then I start thinking about what these stories are, or stories are all about. I mean, for example... I said a hard tea story that came out a month ago. Like for 20 years, Twisted Tea owned the boozy tea market. But over the last year or two, I started seeing more more people coming out. And I was like, huh. And I started seeing what the tea market at large. You think about the Arizonification of tea where everybody drank a 24-ounce can of sugared tea water that somehow stayed a dollar for two decades. Like I, That's just crazy. Uh, but then you start seeing more you start seeing much more sort of like um, artisanal sugar, artisans worse for it, but sugar-free brands, like people with like more intention of sourcing. And so it was like, okay, you see these threads, you start piecing these things together that it's a shift toward better for you and a healthy beverage. And what's this mean for in a world like overrun with hard seltzer? And then you start realizing people are making hard seltzer iced teas and you're like, okay, teas with most one of the most consumed beverages in the world. And so then you start piecing it all together 
So it's really about thinking critically about why these things are happening right now and paying close attention to the shifts in the marketplace and who are the people putting things forward. My curiosity led me to these story ideas. And then another good example would be, I did a story for Vine Pair about, there's a thing called the salted nut roll. And the salted nut roll is this depression era candy bar. Like maybe a year and a half ago, I saw somebody on Instagram's like salted nut roll, best part of being a brewer, taking out like a, a big sack of grain. I was like, huh, what's that all about? Started looking into it. And basically BSG, a, a brewer supply group in Minnesota is like right near this candy company. And so they started putting candy bars inside these pallets of grain. And as the brewing industry took off in the last five, 10 years, more and more people had a chance to experience this. So it was a quick observation about what's this weird thing you're getting that makes your day happier and then to basically like getting back into it and realizing that okay here's a sort of like weird thing inside the industry and now brewers are making salted nut roll homage beers because of this thing that happens and so it's about paying close attention and realizing that the story is observations that lead to sort of thinking about why and then you think beyond why it's like who's this story for Probably, probably three people turned that idea down until I found a fourth place that took it. Wow. You don't Takes perseverance. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what's the worst people can do is say no. <laughs> I will, I hold on to all of my ideas. Sometimes you update them and, you know, there's a rare idea I have that never finds a home. Eventually somebody somewhere, someplace will want that idea. I just have to find the right home for it. Mm. I mean, any idea what would be the next big trend in the beverage world? Um, I think in 2021, it's going to be outdoor drinking. How can you create outdoor drinking experiences in a way to make us all feel comfortable? This is not, and this is not going to be a blip. Uh, this is going to be, I think, a permanent, a permanent correction to our consumption patterns. Five years from, five years from now, people are still going to feel uncomfortable sitting inside cheek to jowl. I mean, you know, PTSD takes a long time to get away. I mean, I mean, it's or I think you're going to find ways people feel comfortable outside for a long time going forward. And it's going to change is a corner is a corner bar in a big city next to a fire hydrant. Really, the best visibility next to a subway stop. Really awesome. And you can't put any tables outside or it's going to be the other place somewhere else where you can build all these concepts and have outdoor stuff. The outdoors are going to be a huge part of like the way that we go forward and be it. And this is for everybody, breweries, cocktail bars, everything all together that you need to find a way to make the outdoor part of part of your plan. And that may mean like shaping your drinks menu for drinks are more tailored to the outdoors, maybe more warm cocktails, maybe warm stouts, maybe for beer gardens, it's more 3%, 2% beer. So you can drink lots, lots of things too. And I think it's, I think it's a great opportunity for recalibrating how alcohol inserts itself into our daily lives. This opportunity is there right now, and it'll be interesting to see what happens. I think the shift toward beer gardens is going to be huge in 2021, and that we're almost going to be turning back the clock 100 years to how things used to be, and then making, you know, and hopefully finally getting rid of our hangover to the demonization of alcohol and parenting. We saw that stigma slowly lessening, but there's still a lot of people that feel that alcohol and kids should never mix. And I'm not suggesting driving your kids to the bar and having double shots, but spending a couple hours in a beer garden outside having beer, which is classically the beverage of temperance, is not 
you know, it's not the end of the world. Like we saw what the end of the world looks like, and that's not it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, this one makes me think of a piece you recently wrote for Imbibe about virtual events, like, you know, festivals and online tastings, and they're really bringing people together in this virtual space. So what, what's your take on it? Do you see them sticking around even after quarantine is over? I think small scale events will stick over in quarantine. I think stuff where you can have 12 to 24 people, maybe small scale stuff, and you can make it feel like a much more unique experience and one-on-one will stick around. I think, I think these large scale thousand person events, like, you know, getting people online, I don't think that's going to stick around. It needs to be much more special that we already feel you log online to maybe talk to your friends, do this and that too. You don't log online and talk to a thousand strangers usually. So I think we're going to see hopefully that people will think more about like, how do you create a small curated event on there too? I mean, even, even anecdotally recently, I've heard people that are creating events and packages of beer and people are starting to care a little bit less about some of the events and more just about the acquisition of the liquid. So how do you, I think it's cause you, it's when you're trying to cater to so many people, you're just not going to hit them all, but you've got to find who is your built-in target audience. Yep. Know your audience. So that, that brings me actually to my next question. Uh, if our listeners, you know, be they brewers or beverage directors, want to pitch stories to you, what's what's the best way to reach you? Uh, if you go to my website, joshuambernstein.com, I have a, uh, a contact me form. And then people are always like, what's your email? They, they'll write me and be like, what's your email address? I'm like, this is my email address. <laughs> this is on there too, after I write them. So, you know, that's it. I read all of my emails. Um, as I always tell people, I read all of my emails. If a story is not an, an immediate fit, I mean, I try to respond, but if you don't hear back from me in a week, you can just usually expect that's not a fit. I do hold on to my ideas. And sometimes a year or two later, something strikes a chord on there. And so I think, there's any advice for people pitching is, you know, hold your horses on ROI. I mean, it's not, it's, it's just because you have an idea doesn't mean it's an immediate fit for something I'm doing this moment, but it could be a fit for something I'm doing a year from now. Like I just wrote somebody back. They pitched me like 10 months ago and I just held on the email today. I was like, still your client. Well, this is a story I've got that's going to fit into your thing right now. Let's just say that, you know, there's a lot of good ideas out there, but not all of them are a fit the second that you hit send on an email. And I think that's what sometimes people don't always get across. That just because you have an idea doesn't mean that it's got a home today, next week, or even next month. And so, yeah, I try to be very nice about it. So um, let's talk about books. So you have written, what, five books about beer. Most recently, Drink Better Beer. I mean love the title and and we enjoyed featuring you in our hsc book media and ask the author series so thank thank you so much no thank you so do you have any scoop on any new books that you're writing yeah i'm gonna be uh no new book i'm gonna be revising complete beer course i think that was supposed to be due in november but the world fell apart so I'm going to I'm going to be submitting a revision in spring. I, it's terrible to say, but there are places that are going to shut down and you can't everything in the book that was about events and about restaurants. I've got to I've got to I've got to cut out and put the focus even larger on people. But I think that's where the industry is going to. It's less about acquire this beer, go to this event, have this experience. You know, also you're a craft beer drinker. It's about the people. So I'm trying to 
re-envision how I'm going to update the books. That will hopefully be out in spring 22. After that, I don't know. I'll be honest. There's uh, sometimes going to be diminishing returns on investments for book writing. And so after a while, and I've done, I've done five books in nine years and gone on countless tours and stuff. And I mean, I think I need to take a break and see what's next. Is it best sense worth? Is it the best use of your time to spend two months on the road to promote this book and do this and that too? And so I need to think about what what's next. Yes, a lot. And it's a lot. Very impressive. I mean, actually, Michael wrote one book and it's coming out next June. And I'm very happy about it. But during what four months of time that he spent writing, I feel like I lost my husband. He was just writing and writing and writing. I'm like, yeah, oh. writing a book is a very jealous mistress. Oh, my yeah. goodness. It's a lot of it's a lot of alone time. It is. It is. All right. And now for the listener question segment of our podcast, we have a question from Chris Heron. CEO of Creature Comforts Brewing Company in Athens, Georgia. Chris would like to know if there's a place for craft beer to succeed in the hard seltzer category dominated by the big players. And if so, where do you see the opportunities? Um, I think it's going to be hard for craft seltzer to compete on economies of scale. You don't have like the uh, Mike's Hard Lemonade Company black box to strip all your flavors out there too. You don't have the true, you're not truly at the world without economy of scale. Where you can compete is locally. You can set your sights on your local market and also when tap rooms open up again. I think people going forward are not going to brewery hop as much as they used to. So have as many beverages you can produce in the house as possible. You see people making kombucha, wine, you know, unhopped seltzer, just like regular, you know, like everything, and boozy seltzer. I think it will succeed in your local marketplace and in your tap room. And I think the way that you can differentiate what you're seeing is via real fruit and new flavors. Like everybody's like, how many black cherries do you need? That it's like that became the flavor. But there's so much possibility out there. So I'm looking at people that are making hard seltzers with fruit purees and other combinations using natural ingredients. You'll never be able to get the price down as cheap as you would for artificial natural flavor, like natural flavors, in quotes. But you can. But there's always going to be an audience, especially on premise. So that's where that's where I would go. Yeah, lean on fruit. Um, make it visually distinct. You know, allow the fruit to shine through from a color perspective. And yeah, hopefully you'll be able to convert people. That's where I'm seeing success right now. Great insights. So we call our podcast Hospitality Forward. Since we are very optimistic about the future of our industry, yes, we are suffering right now, but we know our industry will come back. So in your opinion, what innovation have you seen that are moving our industry forward? Oh, I guess it's companies are make, allowing customers to make sales whatever way is most comfortable to them. Do you want to go pick? Do you want to go drink a drink on premise? Great. Do you want to take that drink to go? Great. Do you want to get that drink delivered to your door via the delivery service? Awesome. Do you want to get mailed to you? Fantastic. It's people are taking away the idea that having a drink on premise is the only precious way it can be consumed. It's really about getting people drinks whenever way, shape, and form you can. So I think that's what it means. I think it's, um, you know, running a bar, running a brewery, it's about putting uh, drinks before people, you know, in a very physical sense. Now you're putting, you know, people before drinks. 
you know, and so you're putting the people first and thinking about their needs. You can't just depend on count on people coming to your door anymore. So how can you make it as easy as possible um, to easy as possible to get the liquid in your hands and hotspot, you know, and it's also about making people feel as safe as possible. There is uh, cleaning the tables, doing everything. It's even if some of the, you know, the, the hygiene practices go a long way to comfort levels too. So I think, I think there's going to be a renewed focus on hospitality coming out of all this. Yeah, definitely. You know, flexibility and safety and convenience. I think that summarizes the current situation. So before we go, are there any advice for our listeners on how to grab your attention? I mean, don't boilerplate, you know, dear TK, comma, you know, you get those emails all the time when people forget to insert your name in there too. Or it's so you, it's so obviously that the font changes a different color and you're like, you just copy and paste this at all. And that's a fishing expedition. I don't, I don't write to 10, I don't write to 10 magazines, newspapers, websites with the same form letter and expect them all to respond to that too. So there are people at the other end of this altogether. And so just think about the person behind it and do your, you know, do your research as well on the pitches. You know, I have, I do keep my website pretty updated, I'd say with stories as much as I can. And so it's a pretty good snapshot of like the things I'm covering and the subject matter I do. And there's something that's, I've not covered a Bahamas hotel ever in my life. So when I get pitches, stuff like that, it's like, you're not paying this. I tend, I try to know my, I try to know my clients. My clients are the you know publications. So then try to get to know who you're pitching as well. You know, and I think, you know, samples are great and all, but sometimes it's, I just try to be very nice about it as well. But samples, obviously not something that's going to be a fit for my story. It's like, I'm very polite about turning it down. It's like, just because an object exists in the world doesn't mean that I can write about it. And I think that's what, that's what's kind of hard to get across sometimes too, because it does feel for you personally, it feels like the most important thing, but it may not fit into you, but maybe another writer works for them. And so, because no two people are like. Thanks for the great tips. And it's been so great. And we thank you for joining us today and hope to see you soon and share a beer or two. All right. Sounds great. Thanks so much, everybody. Have a great rest of your day. Thank right. you. Thanks, Thanks Joshua. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. That was quite a chat. Now that you know what Joshua likes to cover, please feel free to pitch him your timely and newsworthy story ideas. Before we announce next week's media guest, we'd like to share our weekly HLC innovation report from our agency, Annalee Communications. It spotlights five game changers, fearless leaders, and exciting trends that are moving hospitality forward. Let's get started. Number one, what we are reading this week. Our agency celebrates book authors we admire through our hashtag AskTheAuthor series. This week, we're reading Drink Like a Bartender by Thea Engst and Lauren Vigdor. Check out at HLC Book Media on Instagram for our interview on how Thea, Lauren, and Adams Media brought their book to life. Number two, who we are honoring this week, Gemma Bell, founder of Gemma Bell & Company, a leading hospitality PR agency based in London. Her business model is... Don't underestimate the transformational power of sharing your table with others. Well said, Gemma. 
Each week, we celebrate pioneering women via our digital channels. So check out hanalikommunications.com for over 250 women's words of wisdom. Number three, what we're celebrating this week, our mom, Harriet Ann Stendig's 90th birthday. Time after time, she shows us that age is just a number. Here's to many more. And thank you for your unconditional love, guidance, and wisdom. We love you, Mom. Love you, Mom. Number four, what podcast we are listening to this week. Social Media Marketing Podcast with Michael Stadzner. Michael recently interviewed one of our favorite social media experts, Alex Tooby, an Instagram strategist specialized in helping female entrepreneurs. So give it a listen. A lot of food for thought. Number five, who's inspiring us this week? Souther Teague, the renowned bartender behind Amore Amargo in New York City. Souther recently pivoted to deal with the pandemic with a new concept, General Store, a retail operation selling bottled cocktails, books, and barware. He's also offering a tasting menu featuring cocktails and vegan BBQ at this new location that is worth checking out. Stay tuned for next week's Innovation Report. We have a lot of exciting media guests in our upcoming episodes, so please subscribe on Apple Podcast, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favorite podcast app. Please leave a review and tell your friends and colleagues. In our next episode, we chat with Wendy Gillette, an anchor for CBS News Radio, as well as a correspondent, anchor, and producer for CBS NewsPath based in New York City, which provides national and international stories to CBS television stations. Tune in to listen to this globetrotting broadcast journalist who will share her insights and tips. See you next week. Until then, join us as we move hospitality forward together.